0: Welcome to This Wildlife Podcast, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from across the globe. Every week, we'll be transporting you to somewhere new to the vast plains of Africa, to the humidity of the Amazon rainforest, to the stunning coral reefs of Madagascar. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hello and welcome to this wildlife podcast. My name is Amy Turner and as usual I'll be your host for today. I'm really excited to have marine biologist Rod Stein Rostang onto the podcast today. Roderick is the founder of Reef Doctor, an awesome organisation that has fought against all odds to conserve the coral reef system and aid social development in southwest Madagascar. It would be fair to say that Rod, alongside the local people and the Reef Doctor team, have achieved some brilliant successes but they've also faced many, many challenges along the way. Most of us are aware of some of the difficulties our oceans face, but it's not all doom and gloom because organisations such as Reef Doctor are acting to stop the decline. Reef Doctor specifically is acting in three ways to ensure the survival of the marine ecosystems in Madagascar. Firstly they're helping coral reef restoration, secondly they're aiding social development in the areas through novel ways and thirdly by helping fishermen transition into the world of aquaculture and reducing the stress on the coral reefs. So with that said Rod I can't wait to hear your stories A really warm welcome onto the podcast.
1: Very nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated.
0: Well, I think maybe the best place to start is the beginning, because you have an awesome story. Your journey is one that could probably be made into a novel. So yeah. Let's start at the beginning. How did you end up creating Reef Doctor?
1: So yeah, uh, I uh, did my degree in marine biology at Swansea University. Uh, and there I met uh, a friend who all became good friends, a guy called Daniel Pressman, who was a bit older than me. Um, and, you know, we both had a passion for the coral reefs. We had both been privileged to see the, the coral reefs, particularly in the Red Sea. And Sharma and those sorts of areas, uh, Ras Mohammed, well before there was mu- the development that's occurred uh, over the last sort of 20 years, 30 years. Um, I mean, I, I saw it must have been late 80s. I was there when they sort of just started developing the Sharma uh, Ras Mohammed area. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw the magnificence of the coral reef flats and the coral reef there. And, and we witnessed over the next sort of 20, 30 years, the decline how a lot of those areas when we went back in 2000 there was white tax or hotels and tourist beaches and yeah it's quite incredible what they've done and anyway so yeah we met at university we had this like, he grew he was like some of the first people again starting sort of late 80s 90s growing corals in aquariums the personal aquarium which is very difficult and through that he came across the idea which has really been around since the 70s of uh, coral transplantation so basically Taking corals and transplanting them to other areas and regrowing them, and any works. You know, it's a viable methodology to 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 restoring areas. And uh, he had the idea to do this in a place called Dahab, which hadn't at that time. you are talking this is 2000, been overly developed. It was being developed, and they still had the reef flats, but a lot of that had already been destroyed. So the idea was that we would go there and restore these reef flats. Implement educational incentives, not only for the local population, them involved in this side of things, but also for the tourists who were there no, you know, tourists would just let, would see them going out, walking across the reef flats, picking up coral, picking up shells, putting it into bags, taking it away. No one said anything. So it's all to do with all that sort of side of things. So yeah, I mean, after we did our finished our degree in June 2000, by July, we set up the company. Then two, three months putting a sort of proposal together, what we call the Youth Gardens Reef Restoration Plan, and then sent our sort of proposal off to Ministry of Environment in Egypt and got a very welcome letter, come in, have a look, and uh, and we did. And yeah, it, it, it didn't turn out well, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, very difficult, uh, uh, what we wanted to do was, was basically uh, the, the, the national parks authority didn't didn't want us to do what we were planning to do, even though the, the minister of environment Egypt himself said yes to the proposal. When we got there, they went no, nah. no. Nah. It, it was literally like one of the shortest conversations I've ever had <laughs> with the national park authority. They just went no, nah. <laughs> no, you can't you can't do that. You're restricting tourism access to the water. It's like no, we're putting in pathways, we're putting in signage saying please walk along these paths you know restoring these areas of tourists blah 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 uh, knock-on effects you can have from that and they went there no. i know 14 years later they started doing this sort of stuff putting in paths and so uh, yeah it was it was it was frustrating but you know it was a very good experience very very interesting experience mm,
0: well it goes without saying that it, this story highlights exactly the difficulties and bureaucracy of starting conservation projects and you didn't stop though, did you? Far from it. So how did you transition from the Red Sea in Dahab and Alam to, to Madagascar?
1: Well, we thought the idea, I mean, still in those days, I mean, now it's all very different, which is great in one way, frustrating in another way, because the idea of restoring an area, utilizing, we weren't necessarily going to go for cuttings where you could cut pieces of coral off of an adult colony replanted We were looking for what we call fragments of opportunity, so bits, broken bits that you could literally glue to the to the substrate, and in the right conditions, it will grow back, etc. Uh, I mean, yeah, in those days, you know, even though this the, the idea had been around since the seventies, uh, it wasn't added into the toolbox of conservation. It is now. Everyone's doing it. It's great, you know. But uh, in those days, it was like no, no. So yeah, it was a bit of a blow because obviously we were geared up for Egypt. So yeah, it was a blow, but so we, we sent off our idea, the whole idea, you've led uh, Coral Gardening proposal to a number of places like Sri Lanka. And then I had a contact, a friend of mine, his cousin worked in Madagascar, so we tried Madagascar. And they were like very enthusiastic and it was pretty much an open book. You know, it was you no know, very few people doing any marine conservation out there. It was to link up with the Marine Institute so that was great to link up with them and work with them and yeah you know madagascar were an opportunity you know so we chose madagascar we didn't want to go to florida and sri lanka uh so yeah madagascar sound great but it it was uh yeah it was really throw ourselves in the deep end because it was so uh basic everything was so difficult to get you know it was especially where we were down in the southwest it was there was nothing there very little phone signal there was no internet there was one computer in the whole of the city of Tulia you know you got a quarter of a million people there's literally one computer no internet I used to sit there for hours just tapping return then the the internet killed me I mean it just destroyed just sitting there in the heat you can imagine the heat there's no aircon just just 40 40 degree heat in front of a computer and then you give up go off somewhere and then come back so it was it was really difficult and then you know just supplies you couldn't get boats by boats, we had to ship in our engines. We had to ship in everything. Said so earlier, yeah, it's it difficult. This isn't easy, and you've got to have the, the the tenacity to just keep banging your head against the brick wall and keep going. So, and it was, but it was just, you know, the, the the area was. There wasn't a lot of research on the area. There was some PhD theses done that we managed to get hold of. It was very difficult, not from the seventies. And then this, this this friend of mine's cousin, he'd done some surveys of this area, which they wanted to turn into a biosphere reserve. Uh, at the turn of the millennium. But at that time when we went and saw it, there was a mass bleaching event. This was our first recce in late 2000, Huge bleaching event and you know every, every coral we saw was, was bleached and water temperatures were over 30. And, yeah, we kind of knew that this was going to be an opportunity to come in and, and work with some of the poorest communities in the world who had, who had nothing but were relying on this reef ecosystem, which they thought would never exhaust the, the supply. An example of that was when I first arrived there, a fisherman would go out for an hour or two. That's it. He's got enough fish to feed his family. And now they have to go out two to three times a day. might just get enough but it's still there so you know there's, there's this glimmer of hope but yeah it was you could see that a lot of things were happening and there was nobody really working with the marine institute at the time so yeah it was it was a real opportunity but yeah we really threw ourselves in the deep end just just doing anything was was very very difficult
0: and so whereabouts in madagascar did you work and and what area of madagascar were you trying to preserve
1: well it was it was because it was it was so difficult to get too far. Once you got out of the the, the town of Tulia, you know there's no roads. You know there's a national highway, but <laughs> it's not really a road. Uh, it, it it you know it, it, 27 kilometers. I, I remember the first trip we did from the town. We hired a little taxi, and in the taxi was a Catriel, so uh, one of those really old little Renauds. Uh, and we're all piled into this thing, and 27 kilometers took us three and a half hours to do. As in, like every every few hundred meters, get out. Push the car. Oh no! Because <laughs> <laughs> stuck in the sand. So that was that was just 27 kilometers from the town. So we thought, well, we just going north. We can't. I mean, if you go further north, you know, the reef keeps going. You know, but logistics. It was all about logistics and the fact that the Marine Institute had done some work there. There was some data, and, and you know, that they, they had a base. They actually had a little base. Uh, just outside the village of Ifaty, where we based ourselves and we thought well yeah it's a great location the whole idea was to reinvigorate that base uh, for students to come out because you had a university, it's it the second oldest university of Madagascar, the University of Tulia, with the Marine Institute that connected together you know get students out here coming this is your sort of ideal situation where you've got uh, a population which is growing and totally reliant on the resources from the marine environment as well as terrestrial villages behind us, we're totally reliant on that that forestry, and they're all interlinked, you know, they're selling wood, they're selling fishery products, you know, back and forth, and and the ecosystems on both terrestrial and marine are declining rapidly. So, you know, it, it's what's happening to so many places around the world. So yeah, you're prime opportunity, I guess, to, to, to try and do things. However, yeah, but we're not the first, but we weren't the first to come into the area. So I remember that the first meeting I had with the villages the president of the villages of if just to allow me to come in and work and explaining what we did and I think I, I, I took about 15 20 minutes to, to roughly explain obviously this is all translated through 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 students that that sort of helped me set up the the, the project um, and I think I sat there for an hour and a half two hours waiting oh, okay. <laughs> as they <Yeah>. discussed things <laughs> uh, and then they said yeah yeah and then they said they said with well, everyone watching you I'm the only white guy there and then they, they, they said yes you know of course you know uh, uh but you know you're not the first very skeptical oh
0: my gosh I mean it's fascinating to hear about the hurdles that you've overcome honestly it sounds like constant firefighting so in terms of how you helped conserve the reef What did this look like in practice?
1: Well, yeah, we went directly into trying to do some of the restoration work. We would obviously monitor the site that that we were thinking of restoring, but we weren't doing mass monitoring. We didn't have the facilities to do that. We we hired a boat. From the Marine Institute, we had a small engine and limited dive gear, and you know we didn't have a compressor or anything like that. We had to use some of the dive clubs, and that was that was difficult at times, you know, especially if there were tourists that they would fill our tanks, and you know, so it was difficult. So we just focused on on trying to do some of the restoration, was the whole main issue why we came in, and you know, to try and involve the communities directly, particularly the women, in in helping us create some of these artificial habitats, these artificial reefs that we're creating. Part of the initial idea was to, because we'd seen the bleaching and then for a lot of these sort of branching corals, croppers, uh, they, they collapsed, it's crumble away. So you're losing a uh, structural habitat there. Uh, was really basic, to take that out, clean it up a little bit and then stick it back in, but upright, you know, so you put that in cement bases and we got all women and and fishermen involved just doing these techniques, you know, and it was literally just me and and, and Daniel and then we had uh, three students who helped us, yeah, basically set things up, put things together, uh, but yeah, we, you know, we lived a simple life. There's no electricity, no running water.
0: Did you enjoy it out there?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was great. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was a different world. It really was a different world. And, and, you know, people were very uh, welcoming and wanted to help us. But yeah, you could see that it was, it was, it was a real challenge just to get things done and, and, and yeah, for us as well. I mean, we were, you know, we had no experience doing anything like this. For us, it was all
0: new. And out of interest, how long did it take until you saw success of the restoration?
1: We, what we did, as I said, we're sort of flipping between two sites. One site down Cow was destroyed in the cyclone, and then another site. Instead of doing it on top of the reef, we, we create an artificial reef. We use stuff that we're doing now, the rocks, ancient limestone. Uh, using those rocks, plus putting these structures, and uh, you do that just before morning time. Yeah, when we put that down, it was, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And within 24 hours, fish were there. I mean, one of the structures we had, what was it? It was 10 meters long by 5 meters wide. Uh, going up to a height of one and a half meters and areas you know undulating. It was very cool. We had two or three moray eels living in there. I mean it was rapid. So that was that was the that was the optimism. It was, yeah, there was had been a lot of death from bleaching, a lot of collapse, you're never gonna restore it. But there was optimism and like this place, as it was still doing now, is crying out for habitat. You know, there was still productivity.
0: And obviously since the early days of Reef Doctor, the organization has grown what does Reef Doctor, the organisation, look like
1: nowadays? We're still, I mean, yeah, we do a lot of things, but we're still small. We're still a small organisation. You know, we didn't, we didn't have options to grow at certain point. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a whole history. I, just, I could write a book about this stuff, you know, everything that's, that's gone on, really. You but, should yeah, definitely we sort of, write one. I, 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 yeah, I should really. But one day, lots of things happened. But yeah, I mean, it was it evolved from doing this. Uh, unfortunately, Daniel died. Uh, uh, which was a blow because then I was left by myself and then I would do this. So yeah, that that was difficult. And we kind of pivoted a little bit as, as I brought new people in to Getting a bit more information about the Bay of Runaway, Bay. And then, obviously, from the very beginning, when it was just me and Daniel doing stuff, we were doing stuff with the school and helping to repair it and understand that the education, the lack of education, the problems there, trying to implement um, education of the communities and all these sorts of things, which we've been doing since the beginning, uh, and, and, and running along to a holistic approach to this. So, it's not just focusing on let's go and set up an MPA and tell people don't go in there. Let's you know it it was all about okay that's one of the things we're going to do then we're going to do stuff on the education side of things and that's not just environmental education it's education in general so that's why repairing the school or helping to employ teachers teacher training doing all these sorts of things you know paying for this was going to be very beneficial as well as on the medical supply there's no access to medication in these villages I mean you're talking you know these villages you know thousands of people in there they live in reed huts or some of them better they might have a brick hut with a tin roof. Yeah, there's no electricity, there's no running water, there's no sanitation. So yeah, I mean, left the artificial habitat side of things because it was going to be just the extent of the damage and the degradation. It was going to be too expensive to do this on a larger scale and too problematic. You know, we couldn't, there was no ownership of the reef. It's not like, like that village fish there and that village is fished. No, they all fished everywhere. And then you had all these migrants coming in from the south and they were fishing, you know, uh, and then, and then because of what's happening in the land, all the way through the whole time we were there we had migrants coming from land these are different tribes we talk about the bays on our website but we're dealing with five other tribes that are pastoralists they're agriculturalists they they do different things and then they come they come do fishing and they use some sort of destructive techniques and uh, and so we had to address all these sorts of aspects which was 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 yeah very very challenging we were doing multiple multiple things uh, so now it's yes it's, it's gone from the ed- you know education and, and that side of things Access to medication, uh, family planning initiatives, set up sports associations, uh, for girls and boys, you know, trying to get girls to do other things, uh, stay in school. Um, girls there, I mean, by the time they're 16, they've already had a kid. You know, it's quite, it's quite so such it's so different from our society, you know, uh, and that's that's just cultural, but it's also they didn't have choices, you know, it's just what you did, and it's trying to change that, give them other opportunities all oh, very difficult particularly when the, the standard educational system is is very poorly underfunded
0: uh, and i think the other novel idea that i really want to chat to you about is you've worked very hard in the area of aquaculture so firstly could you tell us what it is and why it's so important
1: well yeah the you know the idea behind that i guess uh, the idea that yeah there's more you can do with your reef system than just fish it you know Anyway, so yeah, it's, that was the whole idea with the agriculture. Is you could, there's more you can get out of your reef uh, than just fishing it. And you need to do this fundamentally. Your populations are still growing. Madagascar population is still growing at about 3.2% a year. That's a lot, you know. And you can't just keep fishing. It's not. Possible, your, your, your resource, even if it was healthy, wouldn't be able to sustain this level of pressure. So, is the idea that there are the things which are more sustainable that you can do? But the trouble is, any aquaculture and thing like that is, it, it is, is, is the market. It's, it's, it's. You know, if you're going to make a product, who are you going to sell it to? What are they're going to pay for it? You know, and how sustain, how fragile is that market? How, how, how much longevity has that market got? So that was difficult. So that was difficult to figure out what what to do but you know other organizations had been forging ahead the sea cucumber eye side of things which seemed to be quite good and in particular in our bay area it seemed to be very productive more so than other areas without doing much so that was where we could and there was and you already had the setting up of uh, there was an exporter there who was willing to buy the product asia china those places um so that was good so we had that because in the early days when we started doing this many many years ago with just alcohol aquaculture, which is used in uh, uh, many different products. But yeah, there was was people that were set up there to buy the products were very up and down. You had multiple companies coming in and out. There was no stable market, no stable structure. So yeah, there were other, we witnessed other organizations do this and all failed. There was no continuation. That's the problem with doing anything like this, particularly on this side of things, when you're trying to change people's mentality and everything
0: okay so it's obvious that you want to ensure that the local people can cultivate and use the reef sustainably and be able to farm and and run it for themselves but i gather you still Mm. have a team out there a (sighs) reef doctor team
1: yeah yeah we still have a team out there you know said most of our staff from allagash that are either from the local village or they're from tulia or maybe other places Madagascar. CH so yeah, is it's the director, Emma Gibbons, who's legend. She's keeping everything going. She's the one that's pushing a lot of these big projects, especially the agriculture, the dynamic agroforestry, all these sorts of things. Women's development, yeah, she's just been a star. Very, very lucky to have her. Uh, so her and the rest of Madagascar, you know, just running this, but obviously with this crisis, we've lost half the staff. So we have about uh, 16 that we're just managing to keep on, and they're doing they're just keeping our some of our aquaculture projects running. We don't do the, the sea cucumbers, but we still help monitor with the algae and we do some other stuff in our other site called Honku, which is to do with the mangroves, in the sort of southern section of the bay, which have been decimated. We're trying to restore that, um, and there we do some aquaculture. You know, it's another alternative income generation, uh, freshwater tlap, farming. And we're looking at, you know, maybe mangrove crab fattening. Very difficult. Again, a lot of these projects are in conjunction with the marine institute as well, uh, so they help us with the, the, the data. And then, and then what kind of leads back into the agriculture is, is insects, you know, especially for some of the, the, the aquaculture you want to do. And these like these freshwater aquaculture, they're on land. Basically. They're not in the sea. These are on land. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, feeding them, you know, feed them insects. So we're doing that stuff. So that's really interesting. So yeah, so they they, they run it and, and everything that we've done yet, yeah, even though we have a volunteer program which you want to get as many people in to experience what's going on and, and to help us as much as possible, we still have to have the fundamentals that it's the Malagash do that, like with our sea cucumber program and algal farming, that agriculture is basically limited Western Presence. the community plots they were left by themselves with we technicians so the technicians were trained people and then farmers were trained new farmers farmers were trained it goes like that so there's very little of our presence and even if there is presence it's Malagash it's not a westerner so Malagash going there they're talking with them and working with them you know so that was that's that was very important from from the get-go really to fundamental aim of, of that conservation development for them to have the ability yeah we'll just run with it now and now you given us the information now we can do it
0: Mm, well, it sounds like you've got all of these novel ideas um, and projects going on. And I suppose there's huge room to scale this up. But I suppose it's the finances um, and the resources that, that you know, needs to be locked down before you can do yeah. that.
1: That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do. But it's, it's always trying to find, as I said, it's finding someone that um, Malagasy-based that will be there the long term it's not us doing it you know and then just trying to find money to do that and uh, yeah it, it just takes time but everything takes time as i say to anyone who wants to do conservation it's patience and perseverance that's, that's, that's the two things you need it's really a lot of the time you just have bang your head against a brick wall really and dealing with people you know it's just people people are people you know and they, they uh, uh i remember clearly in the early days when we're talking to villagers, and you know, you're telling them, "Well, you know, things are going to get worse." You've just had this. You've seen all your white corals, and they're dying now, and that's going to have knock-on effects. And It's like some people, are, "Oh dear, we've got to do something about it," or some people go, they, "They they weren't prepared to change. They weren't prepared to do anything." And this is people that have nothing, you know. So it is. It, you've got to understand that as well. You, I think uh, maybe myself, slightly naive in the early days, you would think that if you come up with great ideas, I'm here to help you people are like jumping on the bandwagon and go yeah cause we know there's a problem we can see it you know no not not, not on my experience it didn't happen like that very slow <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: it's clear to me that this really is the brutal and frustrating side of of conservation efforts worldwide actually
1: i mean yeah there's been successes but then you know it goes up and down so you know, stuff with just with the when we're working more focused on the education, we, because we're so small, we haven't always been able to give huge amounts of time to certain aspects. Sometimes we've had to pull away, like when we're doing the agriculture, we put a lot of effort towards the agriculture. So that left some things you know, we, we couldn't keep up. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when we started the education uh, back in the day, in sort of 2005, five, six. yeah, it was good to see the response. It was good to see the education ministry worked with directly helping us do this, you know, seeing the importance that was good. Uh, but again, you know, we couldn't keep that up. You know, so there's been the, 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 yeah, there's been a lot of the, wow, this is cool. We're doing something, but then it, it, it does pitter off because things happen. I mean, I've been through what, two coups and many other different things and diseases, plague, out. you know, lots of things which cause problems, which cause issues with you know, money and, and that. Side of things, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say for, for, for now, at this point in time, yeah, the work with the agriculture, which was started by Emma and, and Shane, that's been great. You know, that's been really good. It's a shame we couldn't start it earlier, but that's just how it was. With what's happened with this crisis, uh, where we've had to literally just you no know, choice but to pull away. You know, the farmers are doing all right. You know, they're, they're, as long as the market's still there and they can still sell their produce, you know, they're not, they haven't collapsed, they haven't walked away and gone, oh, we're just going to go back to what we're doing. They haven't done that. And in, in itself, they're trying to keep what they have going and, and getting a few more people involved, you know, at their own time and knowledge and doing it all themselves, which is great. Same with the algal side and that sort of understanding by the community uh, that things are changing and uh, they do something about it and then with the younger people wanting to be involved which is great push forward and, uh, uh, and get them more involved and hopefully i hope but you know it's not down to me it's more down to the government as well to, to invest in, in education in our area uh, that they will have more opportunities you know for their future because that's, that's 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 imperative you know they can't just go keep living off the land it's impossible impossible
0: Well, it seems to me that there's been so many highs and lows to your story and one that I would say could probably be reflected in in many other conservation settings and I'm sure people listening to this will be comforted by the fact that it's perhaps not them or their organisation that is the only one struggling or, or facing these difficulties. And I suppose that's why I wanted to start this podcast, was to ensure that people had the platform to speak out and actually say, and be able to get the credit for, for the incredible work that you're doing against all odds. You know, it doesn't take a genius to know that when you're operating in developing countries with no infrastructure, different cultures, increasing population, high poverty it really does take a certain type of person to take that on. I commend you.
1: Cool. Well, yeah, I hope I've helped. I hope I've turned people away. You know, it's, uh, yeah, It's I think it's just being realistic, really. You know, you're not going to change the world in a month or a year. eight years, in fact, that I know a friend who set up Feedback Madagascar, great, great organization, Madagascar. Uh, yeah, he said to me before I started, he said, okay, so you want to set something up in Madagascar, see a return? Yeah, it'll take about 15 years. Yeah, that's about right, yes. Yeah. Fifteen after fifteen years you start to see changes. So yeah, I'm not saying that happens everywhere in the world. You know, some communities are great, some some places are, you know, super motivated. It just depends, you know, where you go. The Bear Renaud Bay was always known as a difficult location. For one of the reasons why well. I'm one of the only people there. It's just difficult. Multiple different tribes, multiple different social structures, how people think and yeah it, You know, impoverished people. So yeah, made it very difficult. But it's yeah, yeah. It's not to put people off. I said this to a few people. It's literally yeah. If you if you just have the the patience and perseverance, you can get you can accomplish it. But it yeah, it will take a while. It's not going to happen in a year.
0: Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I must say, it's been such a fascinating insight into what it's truly like to set up a conservation organisation in a developing country. It's been a total pleasure and I must commend you on all of your successes. You're obviously incredibly humble about your successes, but truly you've done incredible work and continue to do so. So full credit to the whole Reef Doctor team.
1: Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. been great been great to talk about some of the things i mean lots more to talk about i can keep going all day really but uh, that's in a nutshell i guess
0: well thank you so much rod and best of luck for the future i'll be following the work of reef doctor very very closely you've listened to this wildlife podcast please do check us out on our instagram page by searching for this wildlife podcast you'll find loads of links and photos to our world leading guests and often we have some competitions cropping up too Of course, our main aim is to share the conservation stories that must be told. We're currently listened to in 52 countries, so let's try and beat that and get to 53 in this new series. The main reason to spread the word is we want these vital conservation messages shared far and wide and for people to be entertained and feel like they're connected to the wild areas of our planet, even from their homes. So, if you fancy it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and please do subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help us. So, from everyone at this Wildlife Podcast, thank you so much for your continued support. We're delighted to have you along on the journey. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.